Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. That's some episodes. Well, yeah, that is some episodes, ladies and gentlemen. It's Weekly Weights. Um, it's episode 123, apparently. Um, Alex, do you do that thing when you like walk past the microwave and it's a palindrome or it's like 1234 or something? So it numerically is significant where you like get excited or you like kiss the screen or anything? I used to when I was like 10 years old. Haven't grown out of that yet. Charlie, do you do that? I miss that. You're saying kiss the screen. <laughs> We've got we've got Charlie Athanasi from Melbourne Strength Culture on, and he's he's already lost attention. I was um, um, looking through my I was looking at my getting my notes up because I'm I you know I, when you send me a running sheet I, I I doodle down some of my ideas and I missed what you were saying. No, that's all right. We were just we were talking shit about whether you know you know when the micro not the microphone the microwave yeah the time on the microwave when it's like a palindrome or something. Did you ever do that thing where you would like kiss the clock or like tap the clock or something? Like if it said like 11-11 or like... Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, nah, I never did. Oh, okay. Well... It must have been for losers, Will. Must have been for losers. Well, any losers listening to Weekly Weights today that are excited that it's episode 123 can tap the screen. You can also go on iTunes and tap five stars in the reviews and leave us leave us a review. We'll read them out on air. Um, people have been a little bit slower on that recently. But today, we do have Charlie on. He's from Melbourne Strength Culture. He's a return guest. And we were prompted to have a discussion with him because I was chatting with Charlie uh, last week and he was talking about why or how he thinks powerlifters sometimes get a little bit on their high horse about training. And I thought that sounds like exactly the type of smack talking I'd love to do on air. Mm. So, Charlie, why don't you tell us what your thoughts were that prompted this discussion? Well, so just to, to let everyone know first, this was, there was just a conversation that me and Jamie were having prior to having a zoom meeting with yourself about your upcoming uh mentorship that we that was a secret no one knows about that yet was it actually no no it's fine (laughs) (laughs) you never never told us that in the meeting (laughs) or you told us all your ideas (laughs) um yeah then jamie just threw me under the bus and said oh charlie said this get him on your podcast and i was like all right crazy so on actually thinking about the topic i have changed my mind not change my mind, I just thought about it a little bit deeper. There is definitely a difference between the principles of strength training are definitely what powerlifting is. Powerlifting is strength training, but the actual, and like Hazy will have a lot of input on this as well because he's taught me a lot, especially on comp day coaching. So if there's definitely the competitive side of actually competing in powerlifting is, is a whole lot different. Um, there can be certain things like exercise selection um, that can, needs to be a little bit more specific when it comes to powerlifting. Um, whereas general strength training, you can be a little less specific. And then you've obviously got peaking, which is probably a little bit more important. Um, and another principle that we like to uh, talk about at strength culture is phase potentiation as well. Actually, you know, understanding what this current block of training is going to be doing for the sequential blocks of training to come. So there are, you know, a few elements that are a bit different. Uh, I think on that day, I was just having a bit of a qualm about some potentially powerlifters, Instagram powerlifters uh, that, uh, you know, start out and then they're, you know, think they're rock stars and then two years later, they're nowhere to be seen. That so was let's, backtrack, let's backtrack all the way because yeah. what, you had, what you had sort of initially said to me and you've now walked it back a little 
what you initially said was, you know, powerlifting is not really that different from just generally training to get stronger. And sometimes people get so caught up in the fact that they're training for powerlifting mm. that they take on quite an elitist view of, yeah. of their training and potentially of the people who are qualified to help them or where they can draw inspiration from. And in yeah. doing that, they might sort of lose the forest for the trees. So yeah. you've identified there a few areas of difference, but do you think that's like a fair statement to start from that like powerlifting training is basically just strength training? Yeah. But it has a few areas of difference you got to look after. It does have a few of those ones that I just mentioned before. Um, but yeah, the principles of strength training are the same. And I I think the, the conversation came up for me with Jamie was because I don't, as a coach myself, I don't want to rabbit hole, pigeonhole, whatever it's called, into this where I'm just a powerlifting coach. I, or am perceived as just a powerlifting coach. I do have quite a lot of clients that are not competitive powerlifters and that are just training to get stronger, feel better, build muscle, look better uh, when it comes to summer. And I like working with those clients too. And the principles of training in those areas, they, they, they do carry over a lot. Um, yes, there's those sort of niche uh, understandings with powerlifting, like I said before, exercise selection, peaking, fatigue management, specificity, those sort of um, variables that you need to understand. But that's where that sort of came from. And that you don't need to be one or the other. Like I've got a lot of, we've got a lot of guys in Melbourne strength culture that have done one or two comps and they haven't done another comp again, but they just enjoy training to get strong. Um, and vice versa. I think it can also be a little bit of a barrier to entry for people trying to enter the sport. They, they look at powerlifters as this elite level. And I'm sure you as coaches probably hear it quite a lot. Oh, I'm not good enough to do a comp yet. Oh man, absolutely. And I'm a, I'm a little bit similar to you in that, I train, like I'm known as a powerlifting coach and most of my new inquiries, you know, on a weekly or monthly basis will be powerlifting oriented, but I still probably have 30 or 40% of my clientele who've never done a comp and probably never want to, who are just training with me for general strength. And we've spoken about this on the podcast quite a lot. It's actually very liberating when you're able to say, well, there's elements of training that I picked up, you know, working in weightlifting or training for rugby and so on that are generalizable to powerlifting that we can use to keep things fresh and have fun. And it's also really refreshing when you work with a client who is not a powerlifter to be able to recognize that there's plenty of ways to train to get strong that don't just fall under the powerlifting umbrella. And so the opposite side of the coin is true as well, is that not all strength training is actually powerlifting training and being able to draw, draw those distinctions and just say, what in principle do I want to take from one area to another, I think is really useful. You feel the same, Alex? Yeah, I, I actually really enjoy every now and again training someone who isn't interested in competing because it just takes away all of those bounds that the sport has, like the particular rule set, the particular, the exact particular lifts themselves. And then, you know, doing a one RM, like maybe they want to do a five RM or a three RM. Maybe they want to do a trap bar deadlift and a front squat. Maybe they want to do, you know, whatever else it is. It just gives you so many more options if you're not bound by the constraints of the sport. Hmm. Yeah. Hey, I got a thought experiment. Like if you think of somebody, I can't think of someone off the top of my head who hasn't done a powerlifting comp or like that I've never seen do a squat bench and deadlift who's like ridiculous looks strong. Eddie Hall. Okay, yeah, actually, I mean, we've had this discussion on it. If you look at Eddie Hall, who has plainly gotten reasonably strong without doing like quite specific powerlifting um, training, do you think that maybe with some time that he could be a moderately to highly successful powerlifter? <laughs> Obviously. And, very obviously yeah and so i think that like 
even just having that thought kind of puts paid to the idea that the only way that you can have any success in powerlifting is through either a hyper-specific focus or just through methods that are unique to powerlifting. I think, you know, like sort of Charlie had said on that Zoom call about the secret mentorship that we'd been having, like, there, you know, general strength is basically where it's at. And then powerlifting is like, or the powerlifting specific stuff is like the icing on your cake. Or, you know, That's exactly what I was going to, how I was going to put it. Yeah. Icing on your cake. Yeah. Cherry on top. Icing. Icing. Cherry on top of the icing on the cake. Yeah. Oh, no, it's not that little of a deal. It's a bit bigger than the cherry on top of the icing. Well, maybe the like icing is the planning and the skill set, and then the cherry is the actual performance. I reckon it's the hundreds and thousands on your fairy bread. That's going to confuse all the Americans listening. Hundreds and thousands of what? <laughs> exactly. Um, Charlie, before we actually dive in, because I got some specific questions to kind of tease out these differences, you got anything to add to that? Um, well, I was actually the one thing I'd, I'd, I'd like to add to that. I don't know, maybe Alex would be cool to talk to about it because you both actually both of you have been competing in powerlifting quite some time i've been doing it for four years now and there's definitely a part of me that wants to sort of take potentially a longer term break still training with the intentions of coming back to powerlifting but having a bit more of a the jacob skeppis approach of taking a year off or six months off and going really bodybuilding specific um, and that's something that's starting to tinker with me a little bit purely from like a monotonous and also just a psychological standpoint of mixing training up a little bit so that potentially when I do come back to powerlifting specific training that I am a little bit more hungry and enthusiastic and ready to go. Um, is that something that you guys have felt? I kind of get, love it. I kind of get it. Like I kind of get it on and off. Like when yeah. I get sort of deep into volume, deep into sort of non-specific training with higher volume, like mm-hmm. I, I enjoy it. And then it gets to a point where I find it monotonous and then I want to go back into a comp prep and then I get deep into a comp prep I enjoy it and then I get really, really deep and then I want to get back to the volume stuff. So I like I kind of go back and forth a little bit, yep. which I think actually suits the demands of the sport pretty well because I can kind of do four or five months of off-season work and then do a two or three month prep and then just repeat that. Yep. So I, I think that actually suits the sport a little bit. Like I, I would never really want to take like 12 months off competing. See, I'm – and Alex knows this about me. I have – pretty much my whole powerlifting career had periods where I really haven't trained for powerlifting. Normally, normally straight after a competition for like four to six weeks until I'm sick of it and want to actually go back to the grind. Yeah. But more recently, cause I've had a bunch of, a bunch of niggles that never quite settled and like just a whole lot of stuff on my plate and a little bit of burnout. I had also been really not focusing on powerlifting training and having those breaks for me really makes me enjoy it. Um, when we were back at lift, I used to, I used to, after powerlifting comps, always max my snatch minimum once a week <laughs> um, for like a few months at a time. Never did any good at it, but it was always fun. Do you remember that time, Will, where post-comp you did? I was, t- I was telling this to someone the other day. We squatted 180 for 20 and then drank a litre of milk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. You I should did have drank a litre of milk before you did the 20, the 20 reps. Absolutely not. I felt so bad after. I was like, oh yeah, I'll do this and just do the rest of my session. And I did that and I was on the floor for like 20 minutes. It was so funny. Hamish and Andy did um, something like that where they were drinking milkshakes and eating hot dogs and they drink like one milkshake, eat a hot dog, go on a roller coaster and they just kept repeating <laughs> it until one of them vomited. Fuck that. That's, that is fucked. <laughs> yeah, that's torture. I was vomiting on the first one. That's yeah, pretty funny. For yeah. sure. Um, but anyway, Charlie, like, to, to sort of answer your question more like thematically, 
for me, like powerlifting was was like the end of the road of just like things that I was interested in in training because I'm primarily interested in training, if that makes sense. Like I like training for strength, the process of committing myself to, you know, a long-term plan or whatever and seeing results at the end of it appeals to me. I like squatting. I like deadlifting. I can bench press. And so, and so like, eh, you do bench press. I do bench press. And so like powerlifting was like a natural end point of that to me, but I never, you know, there was only a really narrow period of my training career where I really wanted to be defined as like, I'm Will the powerlifter, you know, and now especially I don't really see myself like that because I fell in love with training initially because just training is sick and it makes you feel good and it's nice to like have a pump and get tired. And I did that in so many different ways that to lose to lose all of them, to have a very narrow focus never really appealed to me. And so that also makes me quite easy with like taking some time off powerlifting and it makes it really fun when like after a comp, I can do some sessions where, like I said, I push a sled or do push-ups or do like a CrossFit style workout. Like that is really good fun. It might not be my bread and butter for months and months, but absolutely taking the time to do it states an urge in me that I don't think my powerlifting training best does. Yeah, yeah I think the, the best way to kind of summarize this whole conversation is like you can step away from powerlifting as much as you want so long as it kind of fits in the realm of strength training mm-hmm. as long as you're doing productive work that sort of feed then feeds back into your powerlifting performance at some point but you need to have those sort of that skill set and those sort of mental skills the planning skills etc to then be able to actually peak your powerlifting performance mm-hmm. like if you don't have that skill set doesn't matter the training that you do you'll never actually realize your full potential on the platform mm. yeah that's it i was just yeah i was just wondering your because i definitely feel there's been patches i think the longer and maybe this conversation today can be focused a little bit on the longevity longevity of powerlifting and being in the sport for a long period of time because you look at something like brett gibbs who's i don't even know how many years he's been doing it but he just still seems to be smashing training and crushing it and just like how people can including myself and Alex, we're like half of or a quarter of what Brett Gibbs has been in the sport for. How we can manage to get that long, compete for that long in powerlifting and, and as well as our, our clients. Um, yeah. in my, I'm in my eighth year this year. Eighth year, fuck. Right. Hey, You're in the ninth. Way longer than that. Yeah, ninth. Um, Charlie, I've got a question for you. Yes. So since you've become a better and better lifter over time, do you also think that just because the novelty elements of powerlifting um, start to disappear your drive to do it day to day doesn't necessarily go down but like just your excitement about little things goes away because I definitely remember my first couple of like local competitions the idea of showing up at competition was like so exciting to me because it was daunting and there was new people and who knew what I'd lift or anything like that whereas now it's like when I get to do nationals or the TSF championships or something where there's good lifters and it's competitive and stuff I'm pretty excited And if I got to do an international competition again, I'd be stoked. But the idea of just showing up at a local comp to me and lifting is a bit like, oh, you know, I could or I could not. And I think also because because your sort of ambitions raise a little bit and your time horizons lengthen, that it also becomes like more and more important to think about taking breaks. Whereas when when you're new and a little bit raw, it's like everything you do is new and fresh and exciting. So you don't, you don't have that same sort of thought process. I actually think it depends how hard you push yourself during a prep. Cause if you kind of go, if you do a really, really long prep and it's quite 
drawn out and it's quite hard, you're going to want to take a longer time off. Whereas if you kind of have like a eight to 10 week prep and, you know, you don't really push sets past eight RPE a lot and often, then I think you can kind of compete a little bit more frequently without getting that burnout. Yeah, sure. Charlie? Yeah, well, I definitely know. So obviously being coached by Bryce, we run all my blocks are six weeks. I do a six weeks, two week washout, six weeks. It's that very Mike T sort of template. And um, I know that we, me and Bryce have these discussions about, because he can program quite specific to powerlifting. And I do enjoy that um, little bit more bodybuilding style of training. Like I've had, like yesterday I had four by 12 flat dumbbell press. And I just, I love that. It's pushing a new rep range I haven't really been exposed to in a while. I see a bit more progression in it. My enthusiasm for training goes up and inadvertently I actually train a bit harder um, because of that. And that's something that me and Bryce talk about a lot is my enjoyment for training. And I seem to be progressing the best when I'm enjoying training. Um, so that's something that we have found. Obviously there's going to be a trade-off. Sometimes what is always best for you to progress is not what you want and that's where the coach, having a coach that can program that for you, um, coming in from an objective viewpoint rather than our subjective emotional decision making as a lifter. Um, so, yeah, I guess, I don't know, it's just something that I potentially want to be my own experiment uh, in terms of in terms of training, I'd like to potentially try that. Um, I know that's something that massive that Jacob Skeppers talks about a lot. Uh, the, the need for bodybuilders to train, uh, powerlifters to train like bodybuilders for periods if they're going to stay in the sport. Um, so it's something that's always intrigued me, and I'd potentially like to try. Um, but then again, you look at an, a lot of lifters like uh, Brett Gibbs, aforementioned Brett Gibbs. He's training from Instagram, always seems to be quite specific as well. And he just keeps pushing through and making gains and getting stronger. So um, I guess there's so many methods and I guess we just have to try ourselves. And that's something that as a coach, I'm curious about. Um, yeah. I mean, to some degree, I think training methods also eventually almost select for the athlete. I yeah. think Brett... Um, I think Brett right now actually has an injury or needs a surgery. Alex may or may not. Not sure. No, I remember hearing Candido say something about that on a video recently. But like, but I think, you know, the people who are both sort of from a personality perspective and from a physical perspective, really apt for doing quite specific training with reasonably specific loading and things week in, week out, you know, month in, month out, gravitate slowly towards that type of training. Whereas people who are either not as resilient to a lot of high intensity training or for whom that just doesn't work well for them emotionally end up having to gravitate towards training that is either more cyclical or does include more periods of, you know, breaks or whatever it happens to be because the alternative alternative is that they don't stay in the sport. Yeah. And so when you look at people who have longevity in the sport, you're going to probably see a distribution that, that kind of depends on the person and the fact that they have landed there is testament to their success. I think that were I to have tried to train like Brett Gibbs for the nine years that I've now been powerlifting, I probably wouldn't have made it because I'd have either gotten bored or gotten hurt yeah. or just decided like I'd learned pretty much everything that I could learn in the short term from doing that and just wanted to move on, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, you know, or maybe I'd be a better lifter and be more like Brett Gibbs. We don't know. But but I think there is some element of that as well is that, you know, 
what like what's in your heart ends up sort of selecting your long-term training path for you. Yeah, I think you brought up a good point, Charlie, that enjoyment really does matter. But at some point, you're going to get to periods of training where you're not exactly enjoying it and it is a bit of a slog, but that is what is required. Mm. And sometimes it just takes that kind of personality type to be stubborn enough to push through and, and go for it because a lot of people don't have that in them. They, they'll you know pull out if something gets too hard or whatever. So I think that's actually an important part of success too is having the stubbornness and the like, I guess nuts to just fucking fight it out. Do you reckon a bit of that perseverance also comes from the fact that you love it? Like I know that when I've really had to guts it through like really hard periods of training, the thing that's made me want to show up and do it, even if like day by day, I'm like, oh fuck has been that like broadly speaking, I love it. And like, it's meaningful to me. Mm. Whereas it wouldn't have felt meaningful if it was like, well, this is arbitrary and I always have to do this shit that I don't like. Well, so, well sometimes the training itself might may not be meaningful, but the result is what's meaningful. So Maybe. if the result is meaningful enough for you to stick to the training, then I guess it's worth it, right? Yeah. And then I guess like there's also the point of, you know, it may be a slog, but it's not going to be a slog every single session. It might be one session a week or one per fortnight. That's a slog. It's un- unrealistic to think that every session is going to be fun and exciting. Mm. Um, there's some time like two weeks ago i trained on the first so we we bumped up out my training of five days i uh, come out the comp and so usually thursday was a rest day i trained on thursday um because that's what i've been doing this block and i went in on friday absolutely like miserable like didn't want to train did like i was virtually about to pull in the towel put yeah throwing the towel and uh the only reason i started training was because one of the boys i had deadlifts and one of the boys had 100 kilos on the bar and so I just went up and picked it up for a few reps and just doing those few reps. I was like, Oh, we'll, we'll chuck another 20 on. I'll do 140, and then chucked it out and did 180. And then I was like, well, well, I'm half warmed up now. I may as well ended up getting through my session. Um, wasn't the best session ever in terms of weight substitutes before, but I did it. And I, that sen- sense of accomplishment accomplishment after was just awesome. And that's something that seems to always drive me in those really shit moments is just that feeling I feel after when you've like, I did not want to do that at all, but I still just managed to get in there, get it done. And then you just feel this big sense of accomplishment. And um, that's something that I do enjoy about lifting and lifting weights and just training in general. Even when I was playing, you know, field-based sports before um, was, yeah, some days you just didn't want to train, but you still did it anyway. And I, I like that about sport and I like that about training. For sure, man. Yeah. Another Keep thing going. I add before was something that James Clear in Atomic Habits said was the difference between professionals and amateurs was that professionals can tolerate boredom. And inherently, any task is going to become boring at some time. To become a master at a task, whether it's powerlifting, whether it's business, guitar, um, anything, you're going to go through periods of boredom. And there's a slog and you just got to grind it out and do the work, do the practice. And it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be exciting, but that's what's required to become a master or a professional at a certain task. Yeah. And which I've always resonated with that. If only we could be powerlifting professionals. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the, prof- the professionals are lit- not a literal profession, yeah, but just, yeah. <laughs> um, look, I do want to sort of vaguely get onto the topic, although I think where we're talking has been a really nice segue because you spoke about this idea of taking a break from powerlifting specific training. So how, how would you as a coach or even like from your perspective now as an athlete differentiate between training that is strength training, but not powerlifting training and training that is powerlifting training? What, what's the difference? 
Well, the difference is a massive part of its specificity. So you can still train strength qualities without necessarily doing a competition bench press, low bar back squat, and a conventional or sumo deadlift. So loading implements uh, that we use at Strength Culture, which obviously changes like SSB squats, um, belt squats, uh, deadlifts, trap bar deadlift, um, potentially s- still back to the bar, but stiff leg deadlift, stuff like that. You can still work on those specific muscles that you need, um, but you're having a break from the competition specific movement. So it's definitely that element of specificity. And obviously strength is a quality. It's the production of force um, within a muscle. So it doesn't need to be the three power lifts. It, you can produce force in many different ways. You produce force on a leg extension um, you, with a trap bar. So um, yeah, the big, the big, Variants uh, that I think I mentioned before was exercise selection um, from powerlifting to just general strength training. Um, and as a, as, a, as a powerlifter, don't be scared to use other loading implements, um, to use SSB bars, to use trap bars, to, you know, load up, you know, do your hypertrophy work on, we've got a belt squat at the gym, leg press, leg extensions, um, stuff like that. So what about like if, if somebody does just whack a bar on their back and do some squats, at what point does that go from doing squats to training for powerlifting? Because like if I went down to the park right now and did some sprints, like firstly, they'd be really fucking slow. But secondly, like... You'd tear your hamstring. Yeah. <laughs> secondly, I'd tear my hamstring. And thirdly, I'd be lying there thinking, well, I don't know if I can call myself an athlete. Like I'm just running, you know? Yeah. So at what point do we go from doing the activity per se to training for the sport? Well, I guess is a, it's a spectrum, really, isn't there? There's no specific crossover point. I guess once you do a competition, you, you can say you're training for powerlifting. But um, there's plenty of guys at our gym that don't do competitions that are dead set on increasing their strength in you know the competition-specific movements, but they never want to do a comp and never will do a comp. Are they training for powerlifting or are they just training to improve their, their squat one RM, um, bench one RM? So Yeah, I guess like a good analogy is like, you know, like a basketball player, for instance, if you're yeah. someone who, you know, shoots hoops at lunchtime, that might be the equivalent of someone who just throws a bar on the back. Yeah. But then you're someone who jumps in on a five on five scrimmage, but it's not actually a, an actual game. Are you a basketball player? Well, I went down and shot hoops last week. So am I a basketball player? Well, I don't know. That's what I'm asking that's you. Right, yeah. Like, do you have to actually compete in something that's organized for it to, yeah. for you to be, call yourself a basketball player or a powerlifter? Well, let's bring it back like towards the realm of like serious-ish training. So you've got people, Charlie, at your gym who train for strength but aren't really wanting to do powerlifting. If you got one of their programs and looked at it, you couldn't see their name at the top of the piece of paper. And then you got like an average powerlifter from your gym's program and looked at it. Would you necessarily be able to differentiate between the person who's just training for general strength and the person who is a powerlifter if they were both like in general strength phases, let's say? Yeah, so it probably because of back to what we were talking about for exercise selection, uh, there would be a little bit of a variance in the exercises that are used. Um, with powerlifters, there's obviously a lot greater skill component of working with higher intensities in those three very specific movements. So we use a lot of, you know, for squats, pause squats, tempo squats, pin squats, uh, deadlifts, tempo deadlifts, pause deadlifts, um, stuff like that that's going to help the individual become more 
proficient in their skill at those higher level uh, intensities. So there's definitely that component. Whereas someone training for general strength might actually have a more well-rounded program uh, where there'll be a little bit of aerobic conditioning in there, training some movements that potentially they have more time for because obviously things come at a cost. Doing another, you know, at what point is it better off to just focus on recovery than doing more work? Um, you know, there's only so much work that an individual can tolerate. And because powerlifting is fairly specific, 80, 90% of your work might be focused on that specific training that you don't have really that room to do other things, um, such as maybe some conditioning um, or some more hypertrophy focused movements. Um, whereas a, a general pop individual just training for, for strength will have the capacity, capacity to do that a little bit more. So there will be some uh, changes between the programs in that regards, but the exercise prescription is going to be the big one because as a, as I know as when I'm programming for a powerlifter, I'll sit and look right. Well, this individual struggles with keeping their knees forward in the squat. So we're going to do some pause squats, two count pause and really focus on keeping the knees forward and, and engaging, feeling their quads out of the hole. Um, so things like that, that'll be, that, that'll be the, the, the key difference. Um, and obviously, Phase potentiation, as we discussed before, is a, is a big one. Um, having to have some idea of, all right, well, as a competitive powerlifter, my goal is to compete. Say we've got some guys coming up to junior nationals um, later in the year. I have to have somewhat of an idea of well, how many blocks do we have to land. Right, perfect, we've got four blocks. So we can spend one block now, hypertrophy focused, a little less specific, and then gradually moving to more strength-specific rep ranges. Um, into a peaking block. So, you know, I can't take someone from a hypertrophy block where we've done be any barely any barbell movements and um, hitting sets of eight, 10 and 12 reps into singles and sets of three. Um, it's not really setting us up for success in that next block. So definitely that phase potentiation and, and looking at well, what phase are we in, how many phases have we got to our next comp and having a little bit more of an annual plan like that. Uh, is probably another thing that might be a little bit more on your mind when coaching a competitive powerlifter compared to a general population client who's just focused on strength training. Hey, you said something. Um, you said something before I asked that question where you were talking about strength training. You were like, you know, strength is just a movement quality where, like, you're asking your muscles to produce force. Yeah. And whatever movement you're doing it in, like, that's the essence of it. Um. Mm. And it sounds like it sounds like there are practices that are very important from a powerlifting perspective. You spoke about, you know, the skill component, making sure you have sufficient exposure to high intensities and so on. But from a just first principles perspective, do you get strong the same way in powerlifting as you get strong at a trap bar deadlift or you get strong in a leg press or an overhead press? Like are the fundamental principles the same? Well, yeah, 100%. Well, the, the, the guiding principles of being stronger would obviously be the skill of that specific movement, muscle size, um, the muscles required to, to move in that specific movement, how big they are, they're going to have a potential to produce more force, and obviously the neuromuscular demands, uh, the nervous system recruiting the muscle, uh, the, the motor units to produce the force. So no matter what movement, whether it's a, a sumo deadlift or a trap bar deadlift, there's still those three elements. And I almost guarantee, yeah, you take it like a powerlifter hasn't done a trap bar deadlift. It does feel a bit bit odd, a bit foreign to them. There is a little bit of a skill thing they have to work on. It might take them a few sessions or a block to get used to that that movement. But um, yeah, it's still those three three governing 
principles to what makes you strong in that specific movement. Yeah. I think the thing that the thing that differs the most in the three is the skill aspect of it because yeah. there is quite a lot more skill required in a low doing a low bar max than it might be in a high bar max or in a fully arch bench press with competition calls versus like a close grip touch and go um, or yeah. an, a barbell deadlift versus a trap bar deadlift. So I think because of that, I think the time that you need to kind of peak for a 1RM may be longer just because you need to get that movement a little bit fresher. Well, not fresher, a little bit more groovy by the time you get there. Yeah, 100%. I remember um, Bryce in one of his videos said something about the power thing. There was simplicity in movement, but complexity in execution. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's definitely like that constant refinement of the skill. And especially I noticed when I'm in a competition block and I'm starting to move singles and starting to push heavier weights that I haven't maybe touched for a while, you definitely get those aha moments where you're like, oh, if I, you know, screw my feet a little bit more like that, it feels better. If I just, you know, in a squat, keep my chest just a little bit higher out of the hole, I definitely feel like I like I stand up quicker. And you just have those little moments. And they're very minuscule, like very, like they're not anything massive. And typically as lifters become more experienced, the, 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 the technical analysis is very minuscule. And it's, a lot of it's intrinsic. Uh, typically what a lifter, feel, if they feel something's better, I'll be like, well, run with it if that's what feels good. Because you probably won't even be able to see it from the naked eye as an, as an observer. So um, yeah, I remember he, he said that in one of his videos and that really uh, resonated with me. So they, they're not complex movements, but the execution of them can be, can, can be complex. Charlie, what I want to know is, and I want you to call these people out, is who, who are the people who sparked this conversation and what are the Instagram handles? I want you to roast them. I'll tell you off air. Uh, that's not the answer I wanted, but that's fine. So I guess the reason I first asked that. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the diplomat. and um, <laughs> Yeah, we'll move on. That's fine. Um, the reason I kind of asked, like, are they similar in principle? And you basically said, yeah is that like where there are these different practices and where there are these sort of like finite skill differences, do you think that if you kind of just understand the demands of the sport or like you understand in theory, like, well, this is what I need to focus on if I want to be really good at these three lifts that you could arrive at most of the practices that make you a successful powerlifting trainee just through reason? Or do you think that you do need that practical experience of being a powerlifter or exposure to coaching lots of powerlifters to be a, like to successfully plan powerlifting training. Yeah, um, no, I don't, I don't think so. Like for example, Buzz at the moment, majority of his clients, he's definitely pushing that hybrid. You know, um, just want to be an animal of an athlete, general pop. They just want to train, train like athletes. Um, but he's got uh, one guy that is powerlifter, goals of powerlifting, and he's been coaching him, um, Cam Brown, and he's a, he's a young guy who be pretty damn strong. You know, he's pretty jacked already. Um, and Buzz does a great job of handling him and he hasn't, Buzz hasn't competed in powerlifting. I think he does want to do one eventually, but currently he hasn't. Um, and his knowledge and understanding of strength training and definitely his background as well, coming from a lot of field-based sports, um, working with like Melbourne uh, women's AFL team, working at Bulleen uh, Soccer Club has shaped his knowledge uh, differently to say mine. And we definitely feed a lot off each other. So like, I know he'll ask me a f- fair few questions in that regards to help with Cam, but then his knowledge on conditioning and that stuff is just way better than mine. So, but, but my point was, no, he, he hasn't done a powerlifting comp 
hasn't experienced one, um, but he's doing a great job of handling Cam. Cam is getting stronger every. He's, he's milking the gains. He's, he's early on in his his strength uh, training years, but um, no, I don't think so. No, I think if you, but at the same time too, it's not going to hurt to go have that experience. Um, and I definitely would say if you are a younger coach out there that potentially doing a, a powerlifting comp, if it does interest you and there's something holding you back at the moment, just go do one, um, do it for fun. You'll learn the, the experience, you know, anything you do firsthand experience is going to help uh, you become better. So, yeah. yeah, I think you can actually learn a lot just from, going and helping another coach coach their lifters on a day, like help them out with the warm-ups. You get the idea of timing, you get the idea of sort of how to space attempts, how to space warm-ups, um, how the rules work, how fast the comp runs, all that kind of stuff, like all the stuff that you wouldn't know unless you actually had experienced it. But I don't think you actually have to compete to, to learn that. No. Well, something – um, oh, you go on, Charlie. I was going to say, I've definitely learned a lot, say, off Alex, um, JP as well. One of the comps that um, – I coached the deadlift pro at the fitness expo. Alex was coaching JP and I was coaching Stupas and they, um, they were playing mind games that day because Stupas was going to beat JP, but they, they had the upper hand. They had a bit more comp day experience than I had at that point. And so they were trying to play mind games with me. And I learned a lot that day about some of the tactics involved and the temp selection, you know, the psychology of, you know, sticking to your plan. Don't like, read into their, their bluffs and stuff. It was good. And then even when Stupas won junior nationals, um, Alex was at the back. I don't think he was coaching any, or you might've been, but you were helping me a lot too. And I was asking a lot of questions and it was really good. And I learned so much that day. Um, so yeah, I definitely think, you know, hands-on experience can't be beaten because that's how you learn. And you learn by, by making mistakes. And there's particular tactics as well, which you wouldn't be exposed to unless you actually saw them. Yeah, like, like talcum powder in the chalk bowl. That's a classic. Yeah, that's an absolute classic. <laughs> <laughs> like there's, there's certain stuff that like, even now I might see and be like, oh, I wonder what's he doing there? And then I really figure it out. Like, oh, I've just never seen that exact scenario before. Yeah, so... Something I was thinking when you spoke about, you know, using poor squats and teaching somebody to use their quads, though, was also just how helpful some mindful engagement in training and specifically training for powerlifting is. It's like, I would say in theory, I've got a pretty good grasp of bodybuilding training. You know, like I've written articles on hypertrophy training that people like. I've got a vague idea of what it's like, but were you to look at me, you wouldn't be like that guy's a bodybuilder at all. No. And and I think to some degree, having engaged with the process in powerlifting also makes it easier for me when I'm coaching to make good inferences about what tools to use. Because I can say like, well, in theory, these things are all apt for this goal, say driving some quad engagement in the squat. But I also know, well, when I do it, these are the sensations that I expect. These are the types of things that I've thought about that have helped me in the past. And also as a coach, these are the things I've done with athletes that have helped and what they've reported to me and stuff. And so to some degree, I do think experiential knowledge is really, really important when you're coaching too, because, you know, if Boris had not, say, really, really tried to drive his squat or really tried to grasp the technical nuance involved in doing so, he might still arrive at pretty good ideas for exercise prescription, but just not have that final 5 or 10% that really can take you over the edge. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that potentially might be the difference that that, you know, going and competing in powerlifting and coaching on some comp days, that might be, yeah, that 5%, 10%. But that 90%, you can definitely build, as you said, from just 
coaching athletes in the gym, coaching clients. You know, that's one of the first pieces of advice that Jamie and I, or Jamie's always said to anyone that comes in for the internship is like, are you coaching anyone? No, start doing that. Like stop reading textbooks, read your textbooks and learn too, but go, go train some people because you'll figure out pretty quickly that life isn't a textbook and working with actual people isn't a textbook. You don't just take the principles and apply. You have to learn how to actually apply them to individuals um, you know, that don't show up to training or don't do half their sessions. Or if you're using RPE, don't select the, the right loads and they overshoot or undershoot. And it's through practice and coaching people that you'll actually learn those things. And so yeah, that, that five, 10%, whatever it is, it doesn't really need to be quantified, but a small margin of, of getting better as a powerlifting coach is from that, that practice. Yeah, I actually, you mentioned five or 10%. I actually think it's a lot less than that. Yeah. And I, I think like when we spoke to Matt Gary, Will, he said, mentioned that the thing that is your biggest advantage on competition day as a powerlifter is having the strongest lifter and developing yeah. a strong lifter is all of these things that we've spoken about, specificity, enough volume, enough intensity. And then the icing on the cake is the, the next thing that he spoke about, the second priority, which would be like you know, having someone who's more experienced or having the bigger deadlift or having the best tactics. Those kind of things come next. But yeah. I think like if like for, to go back to your example, Will, you've sort of done some bodybuilding training and you've got the sensation of doing bodybuilding training, but would you be able to diet someone down for a bodybuilding show and get them to their best performance on stage? No, and I, when people have asked me to do it, I've said no, thank you. Yeah. So by the same by the same token, if a bodybuilding coach who'd done a little bit of powerlifting stuff, they'd done deadlifts and squats before to a max, had a bodybuilding client come up to them and say, hey, "I want to do powerlifting," they probably would give the same response as you. Yeah. In that analogy, maybe. Except I don't think people turn as fucking neurotic in their powerlifting preps as they do in a bodybuilding comp. Well, uh, actually, yeah, <laughs> I've met my clients. Uh, yeah. Well, I know Dean, Dean McKillop, um, when he came on our podcast, the reason he did, I think he's done two bodybuilding shows, he did two, those two bodybuilding shows was purely because people were like discrediting, discrediting him a little bit because he had the knowledge. He was getting these guys lean, getting them up, awesome, looking great on, on, on show, but because he hadn't done it himself, he lost that little bit of credential uh he, he said and that's why he went and ended up doing one or two bodybuilding shows he said I, i'm pretty sure off memory in that podcast he said he wouldn't do it again he's like i've done it now show people that i i actually know what i'm talking about and that's it um so you have to be bloody stubborn because bodybuilding is pretty grueling like if you yeah. actually went through a full bodybuilding prep just to prove somebody wrong like no way that's too much fair. oh yeah, I remember he was telling us this story. Um, have you had him on your show? No, we haven't. I'd actually be interested to. Yeah. We could definitely get him. Yeah. He's, um, he's a he's really, really nice guy, really interesting. Uh, he's got a damn lot of knowledge, but he was telling us when he was deep in his prep, he was walking with his girlfriend and there was a point where he's like, I just was, all I could do was focus on putting that one step in front of the next. He's like, I couldn't talk to her. I couldn't talk to anyone. I just needed to focus on, and I was like, Fuck, man, that just sounds miserable. Like bodybuilding, getting that lean just sounds miserable. Well, it's that example is an interesting one because as much as I said, like I think experiential knowledge matters, at some point if you've built up the miles with lifters and they're getting results, that is absolutely testament to the fact that you can probably coach. Like Boris, Boris Shako was never a super top level lifter. 
but I don't think anyone would deny that he's a capable powerlifting coach. You know, he's evidently one of the best coaches ever. It's like you were. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Terrible lifter. Yeah. Okay, coach. Yeah. Um, but Second it's true. Failed 300 kilos about five times. Yeah, but, you know, every failure takes you closer to success. I'm failing upwards. You actually have gotten closer each time. Yeah, I have successively higher and higher. So Progressing. Yeah. Soon I'm going to actually pull it past lockout and then drop it. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, what about what's the downside? Because like, as much as like being a bit of a being a bit of a sort of powerlifting elitist is kind of lame in principle. What's the yeah? What's the downside of people being sort of like that? The downside. Well, I, I think elitism in anything really is from a lack of understanding. Um, away from powerlifting, like. Even early on, I think, and Jamie will probably um, agree with this too, that we were elitist personal trainers. Like, oh, everyone should do strength training. If you're not doing strength training, you're, you're, you're a loser. You should like, and we've started to realize that there's probably more to training than that. And there's an enjoyment component. And some people just hate strength training. And if getting them exercising is not strength training, it's doing other stuff, well, then go for it. Like, it's probably better than... So I think elitism just, and as I've learned more and, and, and become, I feel a better coach and understand more, I've realized that, well, yeah, there's probably other ways to go about things too. Um, and that not everyone fits into the bubble that I like to train. You know, I like training to pushing strength. Not everyone wants, wants that or wants to test their one RMs. They don't really care for that. They just want to feel better and be able to play with their kids and walk around and not have their knees hurt. Um, and What's so, like? <laughs> yeah. I think elitism comes from not having a, a grasp or, or knowledge on a, on a topic. And so putting yourself above, it's almost like very, making yourself feel better by putting yourself above everyone else. And I'm better than you because I do this. Um, I don't know if you guys agree with me on that, but that's how I sort of view it. It's, yeah, it's, all, it's almost like they, they've insulated themselves away from anything that doesn't directly resemble powerlifting. And yeah. in, a, in a training context, it's like, it's always singles. It's always the comp lifts. You know, yeah. maybe the only variation they do is putting a pause or a tempo in there. It's always the same thing over and over and over again. They're missing a lot of the piece of the puzzle. They're missing a lot of pieces of the puzzle for hypertrophy, for work capacity, for just feeling better, for better movement, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah so I think. I, well, you go. I was going to say, like, I feel like elitism is a form of the Dunning Kruger. I don't know if people know what the Dunning-Kruger is, but it's the, the, the less you know, the more you think you know. So I'm sure we've all met that person. Like I've had people tell me how to do my job before that have no idea. They've never worked a day of their life in, uh, in the industry, but they'll proceed to tell you how to get jacked or how to get... And I'm just like, all right, yeah, cool. And then you obviously have the, the opposite. The, the more you know, the, the, you start to realise that you know nothing. And um, that's where I sort of feel like I'm at... I, I, just the more I keep learning and learning and learning, I'm like, oh, I still know nothing. I still know nothing. There's so much to learn um, out there. And like, I look at Luke Tullock as someone like that, that he's so intelligent, but you speak to him and he still knows there's so much to learn. There's so much out there to, to get our, our brains around. Um, and I feel like elitism is a form of, of, of that. You're still down the bottom. And you, you've learned this little bit and now you put yourself above everyone else. Yeah, you know, when I when I cast my mind back as well, 
to when Alex and I were first starting powerlifting and Alex started personal training before I did. And one way that he built up his roster initially and got some people interested in powerlifting was by being approachable whilst being enthusiastic about it. Mm. So rather than being sort of like, you can't hang with us if you don't do X, Y, and Z, by actually sort of showing that there is a bit of a middle ground and you can do this and still enjoy other things about life and you don't, you know, all that stuff. I think it can actually quite attract people to you. And so the idea of positioning yourself above others doesn't make them look up to you per se. It just removes you from them. Whereas, whereas being not an elitist and just being an enthusiast about training who's chosen to do it one way or another might actually attract more people to your way of thinking. Yeah. And when I go back to like what the first kind of um, people that I saw in powerlifting, it was like big super heavyweights with nosebleeds when they squatted. That was like something that actually turned me off. So like you mentioned, like me trying to include people, that was kind of why. It's because it was a turnoff for me seeing people do that kind of stuff back when I used to train at PCYC and they held equipped competitions. Mm. Like watching dudes walk out with their knees wrapped in in a suit. It's like, what is this? Like, I don't want to do that. Whereas like, you know, obviously raw lifting was a big reason why it's more accessible. You can just turn up in shorts and, and, and squat. Um, but yeah, being approachable definitely matters. Yeah. Well, raw lifting's made it way more accessible for everyone. Cause you, you don't, you need a gym membership. That's it. And you don't have to have the, any equipment to start a belt, knee sleeves, shoes, you can train barefoot and you just need access to a barbell and plates, a rack bench, and you can, you know, get, start making, some progress in raw powerlifting. And then obviously you just acquire your equipment over the, over the, the months or years. Final thing before we wrap this up is just the developmental perspective. Hmm. Um, I've always been an advocate for the idea of like doing as much general training as you can while it still gives you transfer, yep. um, both because I think it's fun and because I think when you do narrow things too much, you're trying to basically build a, a pyramid off a very narrow base. Yeah. You know, and so like I love it when new trainees have a background in bodybuilding and have some athletic background and have run and jumped and thrown things and just just done some stuff. Um, and I think the rush to be hyper specialized or the misperception that perhaps powerlifting training occupies a far narrower spectrum than it necessarily has to can actually meaningfully curtail your gains. And so again, just having that enthusiasm for training and using mixed modalities and getting a sense of how your body moves in space and just developing general movement competency, I think is really, really underrated um, by lots of people. And so that's like, that's one of my big axes to grind generally is like, you can do a lot of stuff early in your career and it'll probably benefit you. Yeah. hundred percent. I've got like really good example of that is my cousin. She's 15 and at Christmas she asked me, she's like, Oh, I've been doing some weights at the school, uh, the gym. You know, I want some help, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, man, I've got a week off. Come down to the gym with me. So I took her down to, to the gym. And literally everything I showed her, she picked up instantly because she's done dancing her whole life um, and virtually did everything. Showed her a goblet squat, bang, split squat, bang, push up, bang. Just did it without even having, like showed her once, she was just doing it straight away. And so I definitely think this is just random thoughts now, but having that background from a, a kid of gymnastics, dancing something that has that kinesthetic awareness people when they're older just pick up things so much better compared to say i'm sure we've all had clients before that have had no background at all and just teaching them to like hinge is like a, a three-month process 
Whereas you get someone who's played sport when they're young, they've done some dancing or gymnastics or any form of, yeah, those sports and you, you show them a hinge and they bang like that. Cool. Straight away, we start loading it up. Um, so I don't remember what the question was, but that was just that. There wasn't actually a question. I kind of, what I do when I realize I can't express my thought as a question properly is I just say my thought and then at the end I do that upward inflection and then I just let the person respond. And you you just were away and running. So Or you just say your thought and then what do you what do you right. think about that? Yeah, thoughts on that. <laughs> so yeah, it was that was a cool example of my cousin, 15-year-old cousin. I was like, it was a nice little because we what we yeah, it was just it was cool to see that someone with that background, they just pick up things instantly. Like yeah, it's cool. And then obviously I've had I'm sure we've all had the other end of the spectrum where you get a client who just it's like Yeah. Athletic background involves trading crypto and that's it you know yeah. <laughs> world of warcraft <laughs> yeah like there's no, it's no surprise why all the best lifters in the usapl these days used to play football yeah so they've, they've they, come they run the, they jump they're explosive yeah. like they've come through the college okay. system probably training from you know in their teenagers and playing multiple sports i assume probably basketball gridiron all those sports. and then yeah, they've just got a good well-rounded base mm-hmm. um Probably the same reason why I thought when I first started guitar, I struggled so much because I had no experience with that at all. And it took me so long. But I'm sure if you get a kid that has never played guitar but has done piano or whatever, he'd probably pick up the guitar a lot quicker because he's got some form of musical background. I know oh, we were never we were never spoke about our analogies between training and, and music. Yeah. Oh, shit. I mean, that could turn this into another episode. But I legit think there's so much overlap. And even some of the ways in which from, a, I was thinking about this one today, I haven't really figured out how to articulate it well, but even some of the exercises that I used to do back when I actually like was having music lessons and taking things seriously had a lot to do with kind of how you can think about training ideas and concepts. Um, I'm just going to dive in and say this really badly and then we'll mop it up later. But um but one thing that one thing that I used to do in music was whenever I would learn a new musical idea, I would learn the idea in isolation. But then the way in which you actually came to understand it and the way in which you you would learn to use it would be that you would then try and contextualize it. So you might learn like I'm trying to think of a concept that's extremely easy to explain. You might learn so, like how to arpeggiate chords. Arpeggiating chords is just playing all the notes individually. Yeah. Right, um, in sequence, you might learn how to arpeggiate chords, and if you just do that in a solo, it sounds really boring. Yeah. Um, however, if you do it at the right time in a solo, it can be a really nice way of navigating from one register, so like a lower group of notes or a higher group of notes, down to or up to another. So it's a really nice way of covering a wide range, and it can sound beautifully melodic, particularly if you choose the right the right time and the right place to do it. And so what you what you do once you've learned how to play arpeggios is first you practice arpeggiating over a basic chord pattern. So, you know, you just play the chords as individual notes. But then you might start saying, okay, well, now I'm going to start improvising a little bit and I'm going to incorporate some arpeggios in this, you know. And so you you start improvising a little lead, you know, do, 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 and then you do an arpeggio. And then you start saying, well, now I'm going to just break off little bits of this concept and build off it. So I'll, I'll arpeggiate half the chord 
but then just turn that into another melodic lick. And suddenly it doesn't sound like an arpeggio anymore or an exercise. It sounds like music. And there's something kind of analogous about that with coaching as well, which is that like when you first learn relationships between volume and hypertrophy, say you learn that higher volumes typically promote more hypertrophy. And so, you know, the first thing you probably do is you look over a bunch of programs and you say, well, which one actually has people doing a few sets versus which one has people doing no sets. And so you start saying, well, this one might be a bit more apt for hypertrophy. And then the next step from there might be saying, well, you know, like how might we manipulate volume across cycles so that we get people to progress and get, you know, and get better hypertrophic outcomes and, you know, what ranges of hypertrophy or what we use. And then once you actually start to understand that, you then start saying, well, you know, which exercises are more or less stimulative or fatiguing and which ones can tolerate higher or lower volumes and, you know, exactly how high of a dose do we need to promote adaptation and just because acutely higher volumes might promote slightly higher, like slightly greater hypertrophy doesn't mean we need to do that all the time. And where can we take this concept and actually put it in context and use it well? And those layers of understanding you only come to through experimentation and thought. And I think one of the reasons why as coaches we get better over time is because we're forced to iterate those ideas and go from the very simplistic understanding to the more nuanced, like this is how things exist in real life or how I can use this tool well understanding. Um, So anyway, that might've been said very poorly, but just that way of thinking and that, yeah, that frame of being forced to extend upon an idea in a stepwise fashion, I think is just so useful, you know? Yeah, 100%. It's, I, I still find myself constantly refining program. Like even as you said before, hypertrophy volume, uh, increased volume, increased volume over time will lead to more hypertrophy. But one thing I've started to, what about the actual output of those sets and making sure that people are working to a very specific intensity and to the actual intensity required for those sets to be stimulative? And a lot of people aren't. Um, they're not actually training hard enough. They, they want more volume, more volume, give me more sets, give me more sets. Let's work on actually making sure the three sets that you are doing are hard and actual RPE8s. Um, and that's something that I'm starting to really just refine now. Is instead of just going, oh, yeah, just do five sets, well, let's make sure your current sets are actually at an adequate intensity before we start adding more in. Let's work on output before we work on increasing volume. Well, here's my like brain nuke that upset me in the shower the other day, which is that like volume really doesn't, I mean, it exists, but it doesn't really exist. It's just a construct. Like when we say training volume and we talk about doing a certain number of sets and reps, we're kind of just trying to quantify tension that is being imposed on a muscle. But when when you actually start thinking on the muscular level, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean, like you said, that sets and reps actually tell you the whole story because deviations in technique and intent and in how much load you use and the tempo that you move with and all of that stuff matter and exercise selection matters. You know, like we don't, we talk about sets of quad training, but like leg extension training and pendulum squat training and, you know, high bar back squat training aren't really the same rep by rep or set by set in any meaningful way when you actually start zooming in at that level. And so what we have is like this really crude way of discussing dosage, yeah. um, dosage of training stress, but it is really just crude. Yeah. And we get so we get so fixated on sort of nitpicking um, when we talk about that. And people have these fucking inane arguments about whether you should be doing eight to 12 sets or 10 to 14. 
as though it actually makes a difference or what they're talking about is actually a thing when in reality it kind of just isn't. Mm. And so like, and to be honest, you can say a similar thing for intensity in that you're trying to talk about exactly how much force is a muscle being forced to produce, you know, on a per fiber level. But that doesn't necessarily, I mean, it does correlate very closely with how much weight is on the bar or what, what like the relative intensity is, but it isn't actually exactly the same thing. And so if you lose the fact that those, what we're talking about are constructs and not absolute exact things, you can kind of just get led down the rabbit hole of like either overthinking things or just confusing the issue a little bit. And it's not a very comfortable way to think to be like, oh, actually I look at things crudely because I can't look at these things in their truest sense, you know? Analysis paralysis. Well, I mean, I gave myself analysis paralysis by trying to talk myself out of giving myself analysis paralysis, didn't I? So it didn't help. Yeah, that sucked. Yeah, (laughs) Alex was on his phone that whole time. He's going, fuck that. I'm going to fang off some texts. (laughs) I was just checking the basketball scores. (laughs) Um, Charlie, unless you got something else to say, I want to take a break and then we're going to hit you with Overrated, underrated, properly rated. Hit me. All right, man. We'll take a break. We're breaking. We're back with Weekly Weights with Charlie, and we're going to hit him with overrated, underrated, properly rated. Charlie, you ready? Let's go. And we were just talking shit earlier, and we're hoping that you didn't hear us. Did you hear what we were talking about? uh, Singles at eight. Okay, good. It's not that one. We decided against that one. So, yeah, that's become too memey. I feel like singles, you know what's funny is singles that I used to be, like if you were to say, oh, they're not that good, people would actually have gotten pissed off. Whereas now if you say singles a day are a meme, everyone would be like, oh yeah, 100% they're a meme. Mm. You know? So that's one thing I've got to thank subpar powerlifting memes, I think, for probably doing. They've changed the world's opinion. Because the, the variance in singles at eight is just so broad now that you can't even call it a specific... Um, uh, fuck, what's it Prescription. Singles and eight are like cars. You can have a Ferrari. You can have a smart car. They can be fueled through electric, diesel. Like, you know, it's it's a whole lot of very different looking shit, if you ask me, that we're calling the same thing. Well, I've yeah. seen people go like, you know, squat 200 kilos at easy eight. It's like... Is it an easy eight so or is, is it, it a true eight? eight? Or is it... <laughs> Or at hard eight, or at it's eight with misgroove, or at undershot eight. Like, what do you mean? If you're gonna say easy eight, it's like, well, it's seven and a half. It's seven, then you Well, eat. to be fair, I have like jokingly but seriously, like said to my coach Bryce, different Bryce, um, to Charlie, like some of my sets were like a reps in reserve, strict RPE, like seven or eight, but like emotional difficulty nine and a half you know what i mean and like you guys i think would actually know exactly what i'm talking about if you do like a set of five that's like a genuinely hard really hard one you might be like actually i probably could have gotten six or seven reps there so maybe call it an eight and a half but like that was a truly maximal effort in the moment but who's ever actually done lifted genuinely heavy weights and not being like that was fucking hard yeah but sometimes you do like as in if i do just over my deadlift opener I might be like, okay, really, I could do three reps. So it's an eight, but it feels pretty easy when I do it. I'm like, I do it and I'm like, okay, sweet, nonchalant. You know I what I mean? Don't know what you mean. No. Well, that's your problem. I'm ready for a coffin after my own <laughs> <laughs> All right. Not a coffee, a coffin. coffin. And, it, and he opens at about 70% as well. <laughs> 80, 82%. <laughs> 
Oh, all right, Charlie, you ready for overrated, underrated, properly rated? Let's do it. Overrated, underrated, properly rated Nike TNs. Oh, properly rated. Go on. Properly rated. I got them right here. Go. Oh, he does. Okay. So if, if you love them and you've got them right there, why are they not underrated? Why, should it, why shouldn't everyone have a pair? Oh, because not, not everyone should have a pair. There's a certain level of like... Basketball talent? They're not basketball shoes. They're not basketball shoes. They're actually, to be honest, I've researched them. They're running shoes. They were runners when they first came out. The tune, the TN was a tune. And then somewhere, obviously, along the way, they became painting train shoes. Jizzo. Really, Jizzo, really, exactly. Really good to get away from cops. Um, <laughs> is that why you uh, I definitely think the stigma in Sydney is a lot different to the stigma in Melbourne. Like Melbourne, they're a lot more accepted. Um, whereas I felt like in Sydney, there's a big, like, there's a big. Divide. Did you really have lads in Melbourne? Well, I think that's, I also think, yeah, that lad culture might be, you, Sydney, we, might, they might have been a bit more aggressive. Um, yeah, because we had lads when we were, when we were like <laughs> year nine, 10, we had lads for. Yeah, I think they were definitely lads. But yeah, maybe not to the extent that you guys had them. So we had a guy in my year at school. His name was Jono. Um, and he was a proper SA Adelaide. And it was like everyone in our year, and to be honest, everyone in the school knew that he was one. And it became just basically a running joke how much of a lad this guy was. And he was teaching everybody his stupid like lad signals for when the cops were coming and you're graffitiing a wall and so on. And so it became a thing that like the whole school jokingly started acting like lads because they thought just this one kid was so funny. And so we ended up with, what's that? Is this at Shaw? Yeah, this is at Shaw. And so we ended up, um, we ended up with two rival groups of lads within our year, which was basically just the year divided into give or take the kids that didn't want to do anything naughty. So we had the Society of Eshe Adlais, I think, and the Eshe Adlais Society. Right? <laughs> and, and everybody had Posca pens. And it got to the point where they had to keep our year back after assembly one day because they were like, you guys are literally Poscaing everything in the school. And you're always running around going, which was his fucking noise for when the cops were coming if you're graffitiing stuff. And so they were like, you're making all these dumb noises and poscaring everything. And like people were scratching into like wooden surfaces around the school, like Eshe Adelaide Society and stuff. And it just got really out of hand. And it all was born out of a joke from this one kid. And I remember I got myself a posca and I just could never bring myself to tag anything because I was like, I felt bad about doing the wrong thing. And so the one thing that I graffitied, sorry, mom, in my whole life was when I was walking home from the bus stop one day, I just tagged a neighbor's bin. Just and <laughs> just wrote my tag on it. My tag was shit. What was your tag? No, my tag was, was Spiro. And I'll tell you why it was. It's because we had a geography teacher at school whose name was Mr. Marchetto. And he just looked like a mobster. And so we were all calling him Spiro Marchetto. And so I just started tagging things as Spiro because I thought it was funny to pretend to be my geography teacher as a criminal. And so I tagged my neighbor's bin, Spiro. Um, and it was there for years, like until they replaced the bin. He just had big blue Posca on the side, Spiro. And that was me. I don't think I would have ever bought a pair if I, didn't, if I lived in Sydney. I'd never actually go out and buy a pair of them. Okay. See, I personally think they look like shit, but apparently they're really comfortable. 
They are so oh, comfortable. Man, when I put them on, when I tried them on, because I wasn't going to buy them. I was at Full Locker and one of my mates was trying on shoes and I'm not a very impulsive buyer. I don't, I go to the shops when I need something and I, but I needed a new pair of shoes because my other ones were fucked and they were just being released and I put them on and as soon as I put them on, it was like, it was, it was like the, the one ring to rule them all. And then Buzz and I went and bought a pair each yeah. like two hours later. I so. definitely like the white ones more than the black ones. Mine are so nice. That's that's a deuce for anyone who hasn't picked that up yet. Yeah. Okay. Look, I'm considering getting a pair. I like I like having a variety of sneakers. Will, you would look so silly. That's I all the more them. reason for me to get them. Yeah. I Definitely. I also think that like, and I learned this from a friend who who's pretty fashionable that like 90% of rocking a look is just putting it on and walking out the door. And I think that because I'm so far from being an Escher Adler that if I just brought in lad fashion, like yeah. bum bag, TNs, 100%. it could only go well. So, Alex, to your upcoming wedding, I will be wearing dry fit and TNs. And I'm going to be walking in with Deuce, won't I? Yeah. So well, we'll absolutely. Yeah, and we're going to TNs too. Fuck yeah, we're going to rock this party, bro. Will and I are going to walk in together in TNs. TNs. We're going to crip walk in it's together. It's fine with me, but Chrissy might kill you, so just heads <laughs> up. I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Um, Charlie, man, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really cool discussion. People do know who you are, but please tell them where to find you, how to inquire about coaching, how to get to your gym, and anything else you got coming up. Uh, well, so the gym is in Moorabbin. The door's always open if you want to uh, come down. Address is on the website or on our Instagram page. My Instagram is quantum underscore lifting. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. I, I work in Melbourne Strength Culture. Um, if you want to come down, if you live in Melbourne, want to come down, come down. We're always there. If you want to inquire about coaching, uh, hit me up on my DMs or email charlie at melbournestrengthculture.com or just go on our website. There is an inquiry uh, for coaching on the Melbourne Strength Culture website. Um, so that's how you can reach us. And uh, yeah, very cool. We're always there. We're always available. Good stuff, man. Thanks for joining us. I'm Alex, Alex Hayes underscore process on Instagram. I'm Will Spiro when I tag. Spiro. I don't have a tag. Well, we can work on that, man. I need a tag. I need a tag. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you next week.